2: that's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchases, or by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hello, and welcome to episode 900 of the Wicked Library, our 2018 Christmas special. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. Just a quick reminder that we have released our first written anthology for our sister show, The Lift. It contains stories by some of your favorite Wicked Library alum authors, and it's a great way to spend some of your Amazon gift cards. Get it for your Kindle or order the paperback. And for a limited time, if you send the librarian a picture of you reading the paperback on Twitter at Wicked Library, he'll send you a mystery package of Wicked Goodies. Some will even contain all eight seasons of The Wicked Library, including seasons one through five, of course. Get yours by going to victoriaslift.com forward slash read. Now, we are proud to present our 2018 Christmas special, The Yuletide Bride by Aaron Vleck. Our story is told by Mary Murphy, David Alt, Heather Thomas, Nelson W. Piles, and yours truly. And accompanied by a custom score written by our resident composer, Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. And now for Christmas Eve. Let's get wicked.
1: Happy holidays, kiddies! It just wouldn't be a holiday special if there weren't a warning in the beginning of it, would there? Nope. So here we go, another wicked library content warning. You'd think they'd learn. Oh well, let's see. There's violence, check. Gore, of course, check. Adult content, check, check. It's just another way of saying that if you're a sensitive listener, then you probably shouldn't be listening. And you shouldn't let your kids listen to this either. From those of us who bring the wicked library to life to all of you who listen a very happy holidays whatever that may mean to you we appreciate you all enjoy boils and ghouls <laughs> 1.
3: At least two feet of snow blanketed the ground when I stepped off the six o'clock train in Rhinebeck. My university studies were behind me for the Christmas holidays, and I was eager to abandon myself to the innocent hysteria of childhood on my parents' Hudson Valley estate. My mentor, Mr. Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion, was also in the States this season, and I hoped, if time permitted, I'd be able to introduce him to the family, before we had to return to London. From the icy platform, I watched as the last of my fellow passengers were bundled into carriages and sleighs, and found it quite strange that James was not there to greet me. His kindly face and jovial way had always been a delight for my brother and me when we were little and we savoured the stories and sweets he showered us with. I knew he'd be coming by sleigh with juniper, and minerva, and rain. So I took cover where I could, and a few minutes later the sound of bells, muffled by the falling snow, floated through the trees, and our horses trotted into view. Once my bags were stowed, and I was tucked beneath the heavy throws. I regarded James carefully and wondered at the startling change in the man. It had only been since summer that I had seen him, and yet he was nearly unrecognizable. The cheery disposition was replaced with a sullen furtiveness, and the once bright eyes, now dark and nearly concealed beneath his broad fedora, refused to meet my gaze. I greeted him warmly, but he just grunted and lashed his whip over the horses' heads as we lurched into the darkening woods at an alarming speed. Repeated inquiries and tidings of the season elicited nothing but a sharp
2: I'm a bit under the weather, Miss Hawkwood.
3: so I decided to let the matter drop. At last I settled back and held fast to the handrails as trees sagging with snow sped past in a blur and the horses all but disappeared in the thick curtain of twinkling white ahead. In the distance, I could just make out the great halls of neighboring estates lit up for the season, with streams of carriages coming and going, and I wondered what festivities my parents had planned for the coming week. When we pulled up to the entrance of our estate, I gaped in disbelief. Father always strung all the nearby trees with lights, but only one little tree was alight near the front door. Entering the house, I shuddered with a sense of unease. The great hall was dark. No one was there to greet me, and the entry hearth was cold and untended. Without a word, James lumbered up the stairs with my bags and disappeared from sight. I wandered through several rooms, but no one was there. Fearing some terrible mishap, I called out an alarm.
2: In here, Audrey.
3: My brother's voice bellowed in reply. I rushed to the great hall and found Sydney up a ladder adorning a tall tree with lights and holly. The room was dripping with a bounty of pine and holly garlands. Wreaths stood guard at every window, and I laughed with relief.
2: Hand me that last strand, will you?
3: He barked, without even saying hello as he pointed to a pile of decorations on the floor. And a Merry Christmas to you too, brother dear, I said, handing him the strand. He fastened it across a tree, and then he jumped down and gave me a big
2: hug. Apologies, Audrey. I've been fighting this thing all afternoon, alone, and I still have to dress for dinner. You'd better go upstairs and get ready too. Dinner is at eight, and be dressed accordingly. You may be on holiday, but the rest of us have to keep up the appearance of things. You'll be meeting Layla tonight,
3: he said. Lowering his voice with a gravity I hadn't thought possible in my precocious younger brother. Who on earth is Layla? I asked, with a puzzled look. You'll see, he said, bounding back up the ladder with an armful of holly.
2: And... When she becomes your sister-in-law, well, then you'll know why we're all so completely enamored.
3: What? I exclaimed. You're to be married?
2: Go dress Audrey, please.
3: He added, a weariness I hadn't detected before, almost slurring his voice. Of course, but where are mother and father?
2: (sighs) Mother sadly has taken to her bed. She's not been herself. Father is overseeing Clara and company in the kitchen. Go now, so you can be down when Layla arrives. I want you to make the right impression.
3: I just stood there. Me? Make the right impression? I, who from the earliest girlhood, delighted in the most styled and sophisticated affectations of dress and manner, was being warned about making the right impression? I left Sydney and went straight to my mother to see what on earth had come over the place. Two. A single candle burned on the side by my mother's bed, and the heavy curtains were drawn against the night. Mother, I inquired softly. Who is it? Came the feeble reply. Sydney, is that you? No, it's Audrey, I replied, rushing to her side. Mother, what's wrong? Audrey? Yes, I'm here, Mother. I could hardly keep back the tears. My mother is a remarkably beautiful woman. Strong and outdoorsy, and always in perfect health. But I barely recognized this gaunt gray specter. Audrey?
0: My daughter? Yes, I cried, horrified. Audrey, why don't you ever come to see us? It's been years since you've set foot in this house. She chided,
3: finally opening her eyes and looking at me. Her eyes, bleary and unfocused. Years! Mother, it's only been five months. I was here in July for your birthday party.
0: You can't have forgotten. Oh, I see. Well, I'm very tired now. Have that woman in the kitchen... What is her name? Clara, I said, thoroughly stunned with dismay. Oh, yes. Clara. Have Clara bring me some broth and bread later. Now I'm so tired, I... Please, just go.
3: I left her, and went in search of my father... Sidney and his precious dinner and my good impression be damned. Father, what's wrong with Mother? And hello, I demanded, as I strode through the kitchen door and saw them all. Even my father, moving around sullenly preparing a huge feast. My father, in the kitchen, helping prepare the evening meal? Father! I yelled when he didn't look up. Grabbing his arm, he finally seemed aware of my presence.
1: Oh, Audrey, my darling girl,
3: he said, embracing me with his usual bear hug. But his body felt strangely limp, like he too was gravely ill. What's wrong with mother? I asked again.
1: Your mother is under the weather, poor old stick. Has been for a fortnight. "'Dr. Agarn has been having the devil of a time. "'Can't make heads nor tails of it. "'Has her on bedrest and broth for the time being. "'I've been off my game as well, and the others, hmm.
3: "'He muttered vaguely.
1: "'Not as bad as your mother. "'With the wedding and all, we're just a bit under it for all that's worth,'
3: "'he said, carving a leg of lamb. "'I noted that Clara hadn't even looked up to greet me. "'Father, stop!' Come talk to me, I insisted, dragging him into an adjoining room. Sit, and tell me everything. What wedding? And who is this Layla person? I've been gone five months, and it seems like all hell is broken loose here.
1: Yes, well, Sidney, your brother.
3: He began, his voice trailing off. I know very well who Sidney is. But who is Layla? And most of all, why have I heard nothing about her until now? I live in London, Father. Not Timbuktu. You can write. You can call. I've had no word from you beyond a handful of notes. What the devil is going on here?
1: You know, daughter my girl, sometimes I feel as if I'm not quite sure myself. Best speak with Sydney, yes. Sydney will know. Now... I'd better get back in there and see to things. Layla will be here soon,
3: he said with childlike enthusiasm, and then literally scampered back into the kitchen. All I could do was sit there in the dark and stare after him. Then I went upstairs and dressed. This person needs me to make a good impression. Fine, it's something I do exceedingly well. So I fluffed my burgundy silk gown with the tiny glass buttons and the scandalously plunging back and threaded my neck with the fabulous black pearls Vermilion had given me for my twentieth birthday, dusted my face with Japanese powder, shoved an ornate ivory stick in my hair that was coiled like a bronze asp about the top of my head, and went downstairs to meet my future sister-in-law. 3. Sidney had finished his magic in the dining hall, and the tree was fully lit. A roaring blaze commanded the hearth. And here my father were seated at the table with an undeniably glorious creature in a sapphire blue and copper taffeta confection of the current Paris season, with radiant olive skin and dripping in spectacular jewels. Layla German looked more like a mogul princess than the solid product of a country upbringing. When I entered the room, all light seemed oddly consumed by her presence, and the festive tree and roaring hearth suddenly paled before the spectacle. They all rose as I approached the table, and Daniel pulled out my chair, before proceeding to serve the first course. Amidst introductions, Leila stood and glided up to me and embraced me with a quick peck on each cheek. She grasped my arms a bit more firmly than I liked, and for the briefest moment our eyes met and I felt a quick darting probe like a serpent's tongue against my thoughts. I was being sized up, as Vermilion put it, by someone taking my measure as a possible adversary. So be it, then. As our eyes met again, I opened them fully to the very pit of my being, as Vermilion had taught me, and let her see me. This was no simple country princess. But then, neither was I. And it was just as well she see me now, it was an animal sort of thing, again as Vernilian told it, when you just don't like a person intensely. Although I admit to the predisposition when my brother told me to dress appropriately for her visitation, I also abhorred things like surprise weddings being sprung upon me. And I still had no idea who this woman was. No older than I, Surely that she had the tired worldly air of a weary traveler who has seen too damn much of things and nothing at all of a fresh-faced girl of twenty. The insufferable meal with its endless round of awkward chatter and forced laughter finally came to an end. Layla and I, having shared many a quick glance as she hung on my foolish brother's every word, had no further words between us except the curt goodbyes as Sidney hustled his mysterious fiancée out and into her waiting carriage. Then she was gone, and I could feel the house and its occupants surrender a collective sigh of relief. I cornered my brother in the small sitting room he ritually inhabited with his brandy after dinner and forced the story from his lips. Sidney, tell me everything about this woman. I demanded, losing patience with a lot of them.
2: Why, Audrey, Layla is Samuel German's daughter.
3: The words hit me like a slap in the face. Samuel German's daughter? That's absurd. I know his daughter, Cassandra. She's at school in Paris. I almost spat out the words. Samuel German owned the estate next to ours. The family had been friends of ours since I was a child. Especially before Samuel's wife, Catherine, had passed away some years ago.
2: Oh, not his real daughter, silly. His ward or something. It brought her back from Cairo when he was called up there a while back. An orphan, but a real aristocrat, it seems. Who knows the whole story? Perhaps she is his daughter. Who can say? A last man's salt campaign and all. <laughs>
3: He barked with a crude chuckle that made me blanch.
2: Anyway, he brought her home with him about two years ago when you were just starting to work with that vermilion fellow. We didn't really see either of them after that. And then that nasty business this fall, well, when Samuel was killed.
3: What? This was quickly becoming more bizarre than I could stomach. Samuel is dead? Father never mentioned it to me in any of his notes.
2: No. I suppose not.
3: His voice trailed off in that strange way that fathers had earlier.
2: A hunting accident. Cassandra came home from school for the funeral, but I guess she didn't get on with Layla and left rather in a hurry. But isn't Layla a dear? And such a beauty. We met at the funeral. A very small affair for a man with so many friends and business associates. But there it is, and everything was over so quickly. Layla and I fell into our routine, and one thing led to another.
3: And mother and father approve. Of
2: course. They love her almost as much as I do.
3: Sidney said, as though I had just suggested the most ridiculous thing. And this wedding? Is it already scheduled? Or are you taking a long engagement? I asked, praying for the latter.
2: New Year's. We're to be married in this house on New Year's Eve.
3: Sidney replied, beaming. It's a good thing I turned up. Or I might have missed the whole affair. This is all very irregular, Sidney. You will grant me that, I said. Eyeing him carefully, and finding his demeanor strangely energized. But definitely off his mark a bit. More than a bit. I looked in again later on my mother... But she was asleep, and didn't respond to my calls. She was snoring, though, so at least that was normal. Father was in his study speaking in hushed tones with James, so I didn't bother them. I had no recourse but to retire, and it took a while for me to fall asleep. So heavy was the disquietude that clung to the house like a damp bog. Sometime during the night, I awakened with a start, my mind reeling with the clinging filaments of a spirit-sending, the spirit of Leila German. It was like a furtive, salacious touch, horribly intimate and quickly withdrawn, but leaving the psychic impression of a dark stain upon my skin. I got up, dressed, and went down to the stables. I moved quietly and saddled Pygmalion, a dark steed known for his silent ride and complete obedience. Then we were off toward German Hall and whatever was passing for the Lady of the Manor these days. I wished that my mentor, Geoffrey Sykes Vermillion, was with me on what I was quickly coming to think of as a caper of the sort right in his line Vermilion is a man you can count on in damn strange situations. He had taken me under his wing and begun to train me in the arts and sciences of his trade in the arcane. And to my mind, I was making remarkable progress. Vermilion had lived rough on every continent and studied deeply under the tutelage of llamas and monks, sorcerers, savants, magicians, mages, and mendicants. All matters of the occult and esoteric sciences of the current vogue, and those long abandoned and all but forgotten, were his purview. Whenever anyone had such troubles as utterly confounded them beyond the usual channels, that is to say with spirits and such, and the popular mesmerist who invaded the better drawing rooms these days, it was Vermilion who was invariably called in. He was known to make quick work of those denizens of the subtler realms, to insist upon invading the lands of men, and to expose those charlatans who preyed upon the more gullible or desperate believers in the occult. Vermilion kept a handsome set of rooms in London and maintained a large country estate as well. I had come to work for him two years ago as a scribe, but soon gleaned what he was really up to. I begged him to take me on as his apprentice in all his subterranean doings, and he agreed straight away. And we had been at it ever since. As luck was also currently on my side, Vermilion was in New York with distant family for the holiday. Regardless of what my early morning reconnaissance turned up, I was determined to call Vermilion at first light. Four. Pygmalion carried me swiftly through the snow covered meadow, and the stand of birch and oak that tapestried the land between our estate and that of the late Mr. German and his dubious progeny. Soon we came to the tall iron gates of the estate, moved swiftly on to the stables and extensive gardens, which were sadly overgrown and mostly dead, and then advanced upon the outer perimeter of the great house. I tethered Pygmalion to a tree and crept through the shadows near the French doors "'that opened on the grounds and back, and the orchards beyond. "'I had taken the precaution of dressing all in black, "'and on pants for the occasion. "'So I was confident I would remain undetected "'so close to the silent house. "'It must have been well past two o'clock, "'but there were still many candles lit in the downstairs library. "'So I peeked in through the leaded glass panes of the nearest window, What I saw almost caused me to cry out, and the girl I had been prior to my association with Vermilion would have surely done so, and most likely fainted. A massive swarm of shadows cavorted across the walls and ceiling of the library, as though the mistress of the house entertained a hundred guests. Two things deterred me from this assumption. One... There wasn't a sound, not a whisper, not a clink of glasses, no laughter or hushed conversation. The second peculiarity was that Leila herself stood in the middle of the room, her arms raised in exultation with a broad grin upon her lips. Most remarkable, of course, was that she was also stark naked, her body flickering unnaturally like an open flame. Her pale olive skin trembled in the candlelight as the shadows melted out of the air and lapped at her body, caressing every part of her private places in such a salacious manner that I had to turn away in disgust. I staggered back to where Pygmalion was tethered, climbed into his saddle, and rode back to Hawkwood Hall. I was fully resolved to call Vermilion, and beg him to join me, trusting that things in play here would prove far more enticing to his interest than some old cousins thrice removed, and their pudding and brandy laced with small talk. 5. Vermillion was on the next train to Rhinebeck, immediately after my call. He appeared so quickly, I wondered if he hadn't already been packed and waiting. I picked him up at the station myself, so he could hear my assessment of matters.
4: You've alerted your family to my imminent arrival?
3: He inquired, his eyes averted in that faraway gaze he gets when considering a plan of action. No, actually I have not. I thought you might want to get an advance look at the situation beforehand.
4: Excellent. I would like to nose about on my own a bit. The woman will be at your father's table tomorrow evening?
3: Oh, yes. I gather she's quite the immovable fixture now. And besides, the house is in such disarray with my mother taken ill, and everyone else doddering about, I doubt they'd notice you until you raised a toast.
4: Well, it won't come to that, I imagine. "'What say I come around tomorrow morning? "'That will give me tonight for a preliminary diagnosis. "'Then by tomorrow night I should be well-placed "'and ready to meet your brother's fiance. "'No point in alerting her that reinforcements "'have already arrived on the scene,'
3: he said, "'finishing his internal reveries and turning to face me.
4: "'You're well besides?'
3: he asked with a grin, "'handing me a festive-wrapped box, "'which I grabbed for immediately.
4: "'Not so fast.' "'This is for under the tree, and I may have a last-minute gift for Miss German,'
3: he added with a wicked grin. "'I dropped him off some distance from the house, and saw that along with his suitcase, "'he carried his travelling work kit, and regretted not getting to see him put the thing in action "'as he tested the ethers that eddied forth from German Hall. "'He also carried a bedroll. This meant he would be sleeping rough tonight in the woods.' Something he not only endured with comfort, but greatly enjoyed as a reminder of his days roaming the earth. Then I entered the house with the joyous report of my lone sleigh ride through the countryside. My efforts to cover my tracks went unnoticed. Mother was sleeping. Father was buried in his accounts. I shuddered to think why. And of Sydney, my dear besotted brother, there was no sign... I was exhausted and needed some sleep I went to my rooms Locked the door and got into bed But not before setting certain seals and sigils Above the doors and windows and around my bed Against any untoward intrusion upon my dreams Sometime later I awoke suddenly and sat up Something was amiss I got up and went to the window And looked out To my horror, I saw my brother in bare feet stumbling through the snow like a sleepwalker and heading in the direction of German Hall. Horrified about what he might be up to and why he was not properly dressed, I threw on my coat and boots and charged toward the stairs. But as I passed Sidney's rooms, I heard the unmistakable sound of his ear-splitting snores coming from within. I listened for a moment, and then opened the door. There he was, asleep on his daybed, a book in his lap. It was Sydney in the garden, but I realized then that it was his shade, a dream sending. No doubt he'd been summoned by Layla to sinister festivities, such as I'd witnessed the night before with the shadows that cast no human form and the glowing naked spectre of the lady herself. To awaken Sidney abruptly could harm or even kill him under certain circumstances. So I went to his side and stroked his hand with a feather-light touch and gently repeated his name. After a few moments he stirred and mumbled something and turned over on his side. His shade appeared in the window, and I breathed a sigh of relief as it entered the room, and settled on the sleeping form and melted into it. I returned to my own rooms, but wasn't able to sleep, regretting the fact that I wasn't out there at Vermilion's side, on his reconnoitering of the enemy encampment. After a time, I fell into a deep sleep, untroubled by any dreams. And slept through the night undisturbed, even by a call to dinner. Six. At breakfast, I informed the household of Vermilion's impending arrival. The news was met with mumbled calls to ready some rooms, and tepid desires to meet the famous detective of all that occult blather, as my father declared with a snort. Indeed, I thought. A short while later, Vermilion was ushered in, and I presented him to my father and brother as his bags were carried upstairs. All except the working kit which he kept firmly in hand. As Father and Sydney wandered away after the brief introductions, Vermilion cocked his head and followed them with his eyes as they disappeared from sight.
4: Well, they're a royal mess. And your mother?
3: The same. Let me show you your rooms and then we can go to the gardens, I added hastily, anxious to hear what he discovered at German Hall.
4: Yes, I'd love to see them,
3: he replied, getting my meaning. If you need to freshen up from your journey, I said with a smile, I'll meet you at the library doors in a half an hour, and we can take a leisurely turn among the grounds. After a brief stroll making small talk, because my brother was wandering about, and Clara and James were picking fruit. Vermilion and I sat on an old stone bench, my mentor chomping on an Asian pear, and me fuming with impatience. So, what did you learn? Did you see her? I hissed.
4: Oh, yes, I saw her.
3: He replied, and then flashed that smile he always did when he was on to something fun.
4: It was exactly as you described. In the library, the unhuman shadows, the unnatural undulation of her body, the ethereal quality of her skin, the dead silence surrounding the place, and then, of course, the feel of things.
3: He paused for a moment, before continuing in a more animated tone.
4: I'll meet her tonight at supper.
3: Oh, yes. We'll all be there. Then tomorrow night is Christmas Eve, of course. We'll have carols and eggnog after dinner, then the opening of gifts. Perhaps some games, a nightcap, and then off to dreamland, such as it might be for each among the party.
4: So tell me then, my girl, what have you gleaned of the creature's lair and her companions?
3: Well, not much. I told you all I saw and what I felt. The shadows were not of people, or ghost of people. Not people at all, if you want my opinion. Not ghosts or specters or shades. It was the damnedest thing. Vermilion sat with his eyes closed, a smile on his lips, nodding slowly once, twice. You know, don't you? He just smiled and nodded again. Tell me, I demanded like a schoolgirl, stamping my foot as my favorite uncle teased me.
4: I'd be thoroughly remiss in my duties as your mentor if I just handed over all the answers without making you work for them. As it happens, I sized up the scenario immediately and then caught a ride to the tavern down the way where I rang my cousin and roused his memory a bit about his own days in Cairo. Samuel German was a military man, an Oxford man who settled here in the States to begin a family later in life, a thing which raised more than a few eyebrows among his cronies but he still kept some old contacts of one sort or another in Cairo, where he'd served the majority of his career. Wife Catherine, known to you, never took to the American way of life and endured a rather miserable existence after delivering up a single issue, daughter Cassandra, also known to you, and then she passed five years ago.
3: I nodded at this laundry list of facts and tried to be patient knowing the juicier bits would soon bubble to the surface.
4: Now, here's where we come in,
3: he said in a conspiratorial whisper, and I leaned in closer.
4: About three years ago, German returned to Cairo after bundling Cassandra off to the Sorbonne. He'd been long retired from service, and it was assumed by military chums it was just an old man's last hurrah, a return to the site of rousing campaigns, stout comrades, all that. But then he returned home suddenly with the mysterious Layla too old to be any man's ward and much too young to be an old man's wife or mistress without sending up enough red flags to launch a military parade.
3: But who is she? And, well, what is she?
4: All in due time. You won't understand a thing if we don't muddle through it tile by tile. Thoroughness is the greatest guard against dangerous mistakes in our business. I knew exactly what sort of creature we were dealing with the moment I laid eyes upon it and beheld its lair. But what I did not know was whether it was foul or fair.
3: Oh, surely you jest. She's having a very foul effect on my family and everyone in this household. She groped me with her mind and that display in her library. Monstrous. Surely you jest, Vermilion.
4: Oh, Audrey. You must learn some subtlety. Any time there's a commingling between the creatures of different worlds, there will always be some discomfort when they crash up against one another and vie for the upper hand for survival. It's the same for foul and fair creatures in the world and out of it. I had to determine if this creature was of the good sort, or the other kind... I have gone a fair way in my determination, but I must meet her tonight and touch hands. Her reaction to me will say a great deal. I'll spend the rest of the day consulting certain volumes I've brought, and then cast a circle, do my meditations, and glean such as I can from other planes. Now off you go, play the dutiful daughter, and inform me when dinner is to be. We dress formally, I presume? Seven.
3: Seven. All eyes looked up as I entered the dining room on Vermilion's arm. You want a good impression, my dear? I thought, smiling towards Layla. Behold! Imposingly tall and lean, with chiseled stoic features. Vermilion was dressed in an excruciatingly fashionable pinstripe French evening suit with tails, carved onyx cufflinks, a black rose boutonniere, and... For my part, I was caparisoned for battle in a dozen yards of dark green velvet, trimmed in black sable and matching cloche, with vermilion's black pearls spilling over my bodice down to my waist. I was delighted to see Layla's eyes widen as she took in the spectacle. We paused briefly at the threshold, where vermilion surrendered me to Daniel who seated me next to my father and across from our guest. Vermilion, I saw with delight, was placed next to the loathsome creature herself, who had already extended a slender, serpentine hand for him to kiss. The hand was lightly pecked. My mentor greeted one and all, and then the yuletide bride locked on to him with her eyes. And they fell into a hushed conversation. I noted Vermilion's side glance at the woman as she spoke, his left hand on the table, index finger extended toward me. A sure sign the man was engaged in a very great test of wills, and was enjoying it immensely. My father and Sydney were babbling about horses, while Vermilion and Layla were occupied. Which left me to devote my full attentions to the leek soup and hot bread, all quite delicious. But still, my eyes remained on Vermilion and his companion. Then, the strangest thing happened. I had experienced this sort of thing before in Vermilion's presence, on his numerous cases. But it's always a shock, like jumping into a swimming pool on a very hot day. Father and Sydney sat utterly motionless, staring into their soup. Daniel stood before the sideboard, his hands in mid-slice of a wedge of cheese. And Clara halted, similarly frozen in the doorway. A sudden chill wind blew over my arms, and I shuddered. Vermilion shot me a glance, and I remained in my seat. The candles and hearth paled and almost died, and the cheery glow was replaced by a flood of shadows that poured in through the windows and crowded around Vermilion and Layla, their eyes still locked in some struggle I could barely fathom. My heart pounded in my chest, and I almost forgot to breathe as I steadied my gaze on the strange scene before me. The long, sinuous shadows darted through the room in a twisted frenzy, like great black sharks diving and bumping against Vermilion and their mistress. They paid me no mind, and for all I knew I was completely invisible to them, as were my father and brother who had slumped in their chairs, and the others in the room who visibly sagged where they stood. I have no idea how long this went on. Time ceased at that table, and eons of time marched slowly by. I narrowed my gaze on Leila's body, which flowed like quicksilver. Vermilion had taken her two hands in his own and held them tight. She seemed to struggle momentarily, but then she sat up straight and solid as a reed. Layla leaned forward suddenly into Vermilion's face and brought her nose up to his. A terrified scream from my mother's room broke the silence, and without thinking, I leapt out of my chair and ran to her. She was breathing heavily and sweating from a severe fever, thrashing violently from side to side. She tried to sit up and then fell back in a swoon, Soon she breathed easily again, and her forehead was cool as the fever rapidly receded. After another couple of moments, she slept naturally. Raised voices from the dining hall broke my concentration on my mother, and I raced back downstairs to see my dinner companions all standing and staring at Vermilion, who had blood flowing from his nose. My father and Sydney appeared thoroughly confused, and were apologizing and fussing profusely over Vermilion, who brushed their concerns aside with the wave of his hand. Layla blushed, and begged Daniel to call her driver to bring the carriage around, as she wanted to leave immediately. Wasn't feeling well. Apologies to Mr. Vermillion. No idea what came over her, a more vague muttered chatter of the like. "'He gave me a quick nod, and I knew all was well in hand.
4: "'I think we should make an early night of it,'
3: Vermilion announced, "'in a tone I recognized as the command voice. "'Not so much a suggestion, but a firm declaration of what unequivocally was to be. "'Sydney returned moments later from seeing his fiancée off, "'and he and my father readily agreed that it had been all too much.' "'and that they were exhausted. "'But what had been too much? "'Something I missed while I was seen to my mother, "'the strange trance that had swallowed the room. "'Had they not even heard my mother's blood-curdling scream? "'It seemed no one except me had. "'Not even Daniel and Clara questioned me "'about the plaintive cry from on high "'and my hasty departure from the table.' Where I noted later I'd even knocked over my chair. As I turned to head upstairs, Vermilion caught my arm. Not you, he whispered in my ear, as the others wandered off.
4: Join me in the study for a brandy.
3: We adjourned to Father's study, where a fire blazed, and I told Vermilion about my mother's strange turn, and he nodded.
4: I know what we must do. First, what further have you learned from your meditations on the nature of this creature?
3: Well, I believe she is a creature, and not a hapless human spirit, lost between the worlds in some sad wandering. What else? This woman is not her true form. And yet, she seems perfectly human to me most of the time. As for her lair, well... The library has been redone to affect the Egyptian motif. Sumptuous rugs. Lamps hanging from the walls. Tapestries thrown about. Statuary of the usual type. All from German's travels, I assume.
4: Good, you're getting close. Layla has bedecked the hall to remind her of her ancient home. But there's one other artifact that seems to have gone astray from the collection... Have you by chance seen an ornate engraved bronze box with a large emerald and unusual glyphs worked into its lid?
3: Why, yes. It's in my mother's bedroom at this very moment. German gave it to her. But what has that to do with this wicked creature?
4: Audrey add up everything you've said to me. What is the land of her origin?
3: Egypt, I replied, as a truth emerged from the fog. And I began to feel a bit like a fool.
4: Very well, then. Name this creature. What is it?
3: I thought for a moment, and then sighed, blushing in my own stupidity. A djinn!
4: A djinn? Quite right. But she's not wicked. Wait...
3: He said, raising a hand as I moved to protest.
4: Think, if you will, for but a moment. All that you've experienced with me thus far in our cases has involved rogues and scoundrels from the other world and beyond.
3: He explained, and I nodded. I'd always assumed that all such creatures were evil, demons of one sort or another.
4: Now imagine yourself to be such a creature, beautiful, powerful, free and unbound.
3: He began with excitement, as though he possessed the greatest fondness for these denizens of the other world.
4: Imagine that you're trapped by a very wicked man who believes it's his right to pilfer the world of its treasures. Imagine that this includes the world's creatures, as we know it does among this sort, both animals destined for the hunt and those without corporeal form bound and made to serve. Feel yourself trapped, Audrey, in an ornate bronze box, compelled to remain inside unless the master of the box releases you to take a human form for his pleasure and to do his bidding, all of which is utterly loathsome and reprehensible. You're bound to the box by the glyphs of your true name and the names of your noble tribe and glorious ancestors.
3: I blanched at the prospect, my head reeling with the strange humours that had taken over my family and trying to make sense of this creature.
4: In my communication with Layla, I saw the whole sad and sordid affair. She reluctantly surrendered up her story and her great shame at being bound like this. Then she begged me for my help. German gave your mother that box as a trifling, a souvenir of his travels, or so he said, knowing Layla wouldn't have the power in her material form to reclaim it. The shadows you saw in her library and here this evening were the djinn of her tribe, bound with her, attempting only to free her. But be warned, through no intention on Layla's part, your family's in very grave danger. They'll die unless we get that box out of this house and return it to German Hall, where its mistress may work such magics upon it as will release her and her tribe from this monstrous bondage. Samuel German himself is the perpetrator of wicked deeds here, not this helpless, unwitting creature.
3: I heard him out, and I must say it took a few moments for me to accept the innocence of the creature, of Layla, in all these doings. But how? Samuel German is dead, I said, sensing I had this whole thing wrong.
4: Bear in mind, the world of the unseen is inhabited by far more than the silly workman's idea of demons, ghosts, and angels. The majority of them couldn't give a picker's fig about humans. Such is the case with the majority of Djinn. Although the evil ones take perverse delight in luring man to his destruction, the disembodied spirit of human evil is far more destructive than a menagerie of bane fairies. Regardless of the creature or its natural inclinations towards humankind, they all burn so much brighter than do we. Their nearness bleeds us of our energy, our vitality, and our lives, if we do not first become their slaves, drunk on their proximity that intoxicates like an infernal wine. This is what has befallen your family and the household staff. But I fear we will uncover a much darker mystery when we proceed to German Hall.
3: But what does Layla want with Sydney? Why this marriage?
4: A ruse, nothing more, an excuse to get close to the box. Layla is a Silat jinn. Her kind can easily take human form and maintain it for lengthy periods of time, but they don't possess their full powers when wearing the flesh. We'll sleep on this tonight, and on the morrow devise a suitable excuse to make off with the box and return it where it belongs. Sleep well, my Audrey.
3: He said, in closing with a kiss on my brow and a hasty retreat from the study before I could question him further. Eight. I couldn't sleep and rose several times to look in on my mother and listen at Sydney's and father's doors. The place slept peacefully and a certain frenetic energy that had held the great house in thrall since my arrival seemed somewhat abated, if not wholly lifted. To make use of my wakefulness, I went to the small library adjoining Vermilion's rooms and perused his books. I found a copy of the Koran, the chapter on the Jin, clearly marked with a satin ribbon, and several impossibly old tan-bound volumes on the same subject, in Vermilion's distinctive hand on yellowed onion skin between the pages, the gin hadn't been part of my education thus far, and I welcomed the opportunity to broaden my esoteric horizons. As I poured deeper into Vermilion's translations, a wave of pity came over me for Layla's plight as I began to understand the many types of gin and their different natures. I hoped we would reach a hasty conclusion to this matter, and that father and Sydney wouldn't muck things up and get in the way. I had no idea what Vermilion's methods would yield, but I assumed the creature, Layla, would be unharmed as a result. I was up and dressed before sunrise, and went down to an early cup of tea. Settled in the breakfast room with a steaming pot and a plate of my favourite scones, I was soon joined by Vermilion.
4: So, here's the story.
3: He began brightly, lifting a scone from my plate.
4: You've told me about this mysterious box belonging to your mother and its unusual encryptions. I'll agree to decipher and translate its meaning, broach the subject during dinner, It'll be late enough for me to abscond with the thing to my rooms to concert certain volumes I have that will prove germane to the task. Then, when all are abed, I'll take the box to Layla. You will accompany me. After we've accomplished our task, we return the box to your mother's room and your family will be none the wiser. Understood?
3: Yes, I said, barely able to contain my excitement. Will there be anything, you know, to see, I asked hoping for more of the fantastical sights I'd been privy to on my previous clandestine visit to German
4: Hall. Possibly, which is why I want you along. Layla and her companions will prove no danger to us, provided any conjoining of space and planes of existence does not prove too much for you.
3: I should think not, Vermilion. When have I ever been so faint of heart on any of our previous capers?
4: Indeed, but there's always the proverbial first time, and I want you to leave immediately should you feel in any way overwhelmed, or on my sign. Is that understood?
3: Yes, if I must.
4: You must, or we will not be able to continue your studies. I won't have you harmed, and I will be obeyed in all matters of this kind without question.
3: His voice boomed, and I feared someone would hear us.
4: Is that perfectly understood?
3: He asked glaring at me coolly but with a kindly air. Very well. From the hall, I heard the tramping of feet as the others plodded down the stairs. 9. Christmas Eve descended on Hawkwood Hall, blanketing everything in a layer of fresh snow. The irregular happenings at dinner the night before where it appeared our guest had struck Vermilion and bloodied his nose, and the lady's hasty retreat amidst vague apologies, prompted the message from German Hall that morning that Layla had taken a chill and wouldn't be able to join us for dinner, hopefully coming over briefly on the morrow, and etc., and etc. If Vermilion and I were on our game in usual form, there would be no on the morrow for Miss Layla German, the day dragged by with everyone fiddling about half heartedly, with whatever caught their fancy for a few moments. Sidney fussed over the evergreen boughs and holly that dripped from every corner of the great hall. Father might have been altogether absent, for all I knew. And Vermilion was in his rooms, doing whatever Vermilion does behind locked doors, in preparation for the final resolution of a case. Mother slept, Clara and company prepared the holiday feast, and I wandered the halls like a spectral shade in search of its everlasting resting place. I took to my rooms finally. I must have dozed, because a light rap on my door startled me, and I cried out. Vermilion's head popped in, and he gave me quite a look. You're all right. I nodded, and gathered my wits, and wandered at the time.
4: Your father just called us to dinner. It'll be a sad affair, so put on your best face. I'll be back in five minutes to escort you down. And remember the box.
3: Of course. Yes, five minutes. Collect me then. Five minutes later, Vermilion knocked, and we went down to dinner. The hall was lovely. Boughs festooned everywhere. The tree was alight and dozens of candles were arrayed throughout. We dined on cold pheasant and wild pig jam, a medley of roasted winter vegetables and hearty bread, and a large pork roast. Tomorrow's menu would see a turkey, and all the mandatory country trimmings and accompaniments. Everyone seemed to have a hearty appetite, but the conversation was hushed and lackluster, until I raised the matter of the box in Mother's rooms. Oh, I've had a thought, I said brightly, as though I had just been struck dumb by the idea. I've always been damn curious about those strange ruins, or whatever they are, on that old bronze box German gave Mother, and I wonder if Vermilion might be able to sort it out.
4: Of course, happy to,
3: he said with a wink.
4: Bring it by later and I'll take a look.
3: What's this? My father chirped.
4: Your mother's not well. No ransacking her rooms
1: at night. I'll not have it.
3: Oh, father, it won't take a moment. She'll never know. And besides, she's wondered, too. I know she has. I'm sure it would amuse her to solve a mystery.
1: Well, mind you, take care and be damned quiet, or there'll be hell to pay. I mean it,
3: he added, and then his words trailed off. I longed for my father to emit his usual harumph of satisfaction that preceded his retreat to his study for a brandy before bed. You'd never have guessed this was Christmas Eve. No carols on the Victrola. No rousing toast and well-wishing. No festive friends and neighbors gathered round the table. And not a mention of the mountain of presents under the tree. No word of Layla either. Or mumblings about her well being on this festive eve. Then it was over, and Vermilion and I were moving quietly toward my mother's rooms. Minutes later, I had placed the box into Vermilion's waiting arms, and then he disappeared without another word behind his door, and I heard the key turn swiftly in the lock. I flushed briefly with anger. But reminded myself that I was a student, not the master in these affairs, and that I was still too green to be taken as a full partner into every detail of Vermilion's craft. But damn it! This was my family! Had I not fared well enough at German Hall on the previous occasion? Returning to my rooms, I found a fire on the hearth and settled into my chair to await the unfolding of events. Later, I awakened with a start, when Vermilion entered my room and shut the door. He was dressed in his great coat and boots and hat, and grinned as he padded the box, and told for me to prepare myself for a snowy ride. Then we slipped downstairs... "'and made our way out of the silent house. "'In the stables, we saddled Pygmalion and Ramses "'and led them away from the cobblestone courtyard "'so our departure wouldn't raise any alarms. "'As we rode, Vermilion brought me up to speed on his findings.
4: "'This is quite a tale, Audrey, much more than I had imagined at first cut. "'There is a monster here, but it's not that poor creature passing as Layla German.'
3: He pulled his horse up and regarded me closely, and I could see a look of disgust on his face.
4: As I surmised, Layla is a jinn, a silat, one trapped in Cairo and brought here by Samuel German against her will to do his bidding in whatever sick and twisted campaigns he might devise. Do you know, this creature and her entire tribe were enslaved by German and compelled to exterminate many innocent people in Cairo? He then sacked the victims of their valuables, people and jinn alike, and kept Layla ensconced in this box. The other jinn remain loyal to their queen and never leave her side, appearing only as shadows when she communes with them, as you saw the other night in German's library. Samuel German was a monster in his private life, like so many of his kind are, hidden behind the carefully curated veneer of a polished gentleman, but free behind those appearances to pursue his despicable appetites and pastimes. He was a loathsome creature, responsible for his wife's death, and who knows what travesties against his daughter who was forced to flee the continent to be free of him.
3: I sat there atop Pygmalion's noble body in shock, about to lose the contents of my stomach over my saddle, when Vermilion continued.
4: So... "'We must be off. This creature has been awaiting our help for much too long. "'We must finish the horror that have animated that house for far too long. "'When the creatures are free, the truly dark business of our work will begin. "'But I have all the tools we'll need right here,'
3: he said, "'raising his beaten leather kit bag in front of my face, "'his mouth a grimace of determination.
4: "'We must be quick about it. "'There'll be no time to waste getting back to Hawkwood when our work is finished.'
3: Then he dug in his heels and urged Ramses on to a quick trot. 10. German Hall rose menacingly, like a wall of black palisades through the trees, and I could see lights in every room and shadows dancing in the windows. I shuddered as I recalled those darting spectral forms as they caressed Layla's body and her exultation in their midst. "'and steeled myself for further encounters with the jinn. "'Our approach was known to the dwellers in the hall, "'and soon Leila herself appeared on the large terrace "'off the second-floor study. "'She made no sign to us, "'but stood watching and then disappeared into the house "'as we reined in and leapt from our saddles. "'We made for the front door which already lay open.' and Vermilion charged across the threshold, several paces ahead of me. I scrambled after him, watching as without hesitation he headed for the library, as though long familiar with the place. Vermilion flung open the great carved oak doors, and we were immediately bathed in pale yellow light. Despite my heavy coat, I was trembling with the cold, or something like it, threatened to shake my insides loose. Countless times I had been with Vermilion on his cases, and was used to the presence of things from the unseen worlds, spirits, and many another denizen. The proximity of such specters always caused a chittering cold that clung to my bones, but never anything this violent that seemed to rack me to my very core. I wondered what we were up against, especially in light of Vermilion's insistence that Layla was the victim in these doings. Barging into the library behind my mentor, I saw the room was swarming with the fluid serpentine shadows that leapt and entwined Layla's body, as on the previous occasion. Vermilion paused briefly to take in the scene. Then he threw off his coat. "'and placed the carved bronze box onto the oak table. "'He opened the lid and then stepped away. "'Layla twisted sharply around to look at us, "'her features flooded with joy. "'She ran to the table and lifted the great carved thing "'and thrust it into a knot of writhing shadows above her head. "'The dark figures were sucked into the box.' and then the lid slammed shut and Layla tossed it into the air. A moment later, there was a horrific explosion and the room rocked and shuddered as with a mighty blow. The box seemed to freeze in mid-air for a second before exploding into a million shards. Then it all disappeared before the fragments could even reach the floor. Layla now fully corporeal again, raced up to Vermilion and embraced him. He smiled at her, but they said nothing. Then she wavered and burst into flame before springing into the fireplace. Then she was gone, leaving the room empty of shadows as Vermilion and I felt a peaceful emptiness descend on the place. Well, I said, catching my breath. That wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. Let's leave this place and get back to Hawkwood, I added, both relieved it was over without mishap, but somewhat disappointed that it was all over so quickly. I halted when I saw Vermilion standing still, his head slightly cocked, as if listening to something very far away. The look of rage returning to his face.
4: Not so fast. I said the trial was yet before us. We needed to clear the place lest those gin be made to further serve the darkness that is swallowing this house. To the cellar. That's where the festering core of this matter still lives and threatens to spread beyond these walls. We must strike without hesitation.
3: Vermilion cried as he cleared the door and headed for the staircase. 11. I almost collided with Vermilion at the top of the stairs, leading down into the gloom of the cellar. I wondered why he'd paused, but then I saw a faint glow in the darkness, and was hit by the hideous stench that rose upon a noxious mist that obscured the cellar floor. What? I hissed. But Vermilion hushed me with an angry glance. Then he slowly descended the stairs, and I followed. Halting on the bottom step, but not setting foot into the thick, roiling mist, my jaw dropped in disbelief. What lay across a cellar floor was beyond anything I'd ever seen. An oily grey fog rose from the floor and eddied and coiled like a living thing whose gentle undulations displayed a foul, probing sensuality that made me cringe. I realized how very sheltered Vermilion had kept me from the more menacing elements of his work and suddenly felt like a novice, only used to table wrapping and seances gone awry. I shuddered to think how much more outre my mentor's doings might be, when I noticed he was muttering something, and working his right hand in a series of intricate sigils over the floor. Then he stepped into the mist, and it instantly recoiled from him, and retreated to the center of the room, where it rose up as a standing pillar. Within the smoldering mass, a dark, twisting shape emerged, from what looked like an ancient, unhallowed grave, reeking of the charnel pits and the decayed rot of centuries, Vermilion continued to wade through the mist, and it continued to part before him like some sinister red sea. My mentor motioned with his right hand for me to remain on the stairs, and I complied without protest. A faint moaning seeped into the room, as if from a doomed ship crashed upon the rocks. Within the column of mist, a black spiral obelisk some ten feet in height appeared before us. Vermillion approached the thing and laid the palms of his hands on its smooth surface. The thing shook and trembled violently in protest, as he quickly traced the sigils of binding over its surface. I had to grasp the railing to steady myself as the obelisk cracked open, revealing the hideous form of a naked, emaciated old man. I recognized instantly the twisted body of Samuel German. His eyes open, and boring into my mentor's own, with feral rage, the thing sprang at Vermilion and enclosed him in what looked like yards of hideous slug-like coils that heaved and oozed with a thick, viscous slime. Vermilion motioned me forward and I only hesitated for a second before descending the stairs and walking cautiously through the trailing mist to his side. I almost vomited, so wrong were the infernal currents of the other world so hideous was the evil thing that hissed and groaned in its vicious struggle with my friend and mentor shock of seeing the animated corpse of my dead neighbor a man known to me for many years transformed into this vile abomination of life almost froze me where I stood Before either of us had time to act, Samuel German's body melted further, enclosing Vermilion's body like a moon-cursed cocoon. Only the German creature's head retained some gelatinous, mishappened form, with two infernal bloodied eyes commanding the face of the thing. My mentor just stood there. His eyes still locked on the German creature's, In the mist on the floor, lumpen forms began to emerge, rise, and crawl, not quite breaking the surface and coming fully into view. Within minutes, the floor was writhing with a veritable swarm of things of some unknown origin that rose to menace Vermilion and me amidst a symphony of longing sighs. An inarticulate meeping. Other glistening, translucent things dropped from the rafters like maggots and crawled toward us making great sucking sounds. The image of an army of blind albino slugs with huge gaping mouths and red teeth ready to rend and tear filled my mind. And I almost screamed aloud.
4: Audrey grabbed the dagger from my right boot and thrust it to the hilt into the base of the thing's skull.
3: Vermilion growled through clenched teeth. I plunged my hand into the hot melting goo and grabbed the dagger, the muck biting like ice to the very bone of my hand. I held my breath and grasped the hilt and pulled it forth amidst a horrible sucking sound. And prepared to bury it in the rubbery white thing that crushed Vermilion tighter by the moment. I saw with horror that the place indicated was right over Vermilion's heart, and I froze. I realized then that this was no ordinary dagger. It was the ancient Tibetan ritual blade that was normally in Vermilion's working kit, in its own carved box and silken wrappings. The thing had no proper edge along its bronze blade. Its real power resided in the sacred text carved into the bone hilt. Inscriptions that at times, and in the right light, seemed to flow over the surface of the thing with a sinuous life of their own. Do it! Vermilion screamed, breaking me from my thoughts about the dagger.
4: Do it now! You cannot hesitate or all will be lost!
3: But, I cried terrified at what I must do, and disgusted with myself for balking in the face of my greatest trial. Audrey! Vermilion's voice brought me around, as a delicious, consuming fire flooded through my hands from the blade and filled me with an unimaginable power and purpose. I screamed in ecstasy, and without thinking, took the dagger in both hands, raised it over my head... And brought it down sharply into German's neck, ripping it from side to side and almost severing the gibbering lumpen thing that passed for a head. Immediately, there was a terrifying snarl and a roar that almost shattered my eardrums. Overhead near the ceiling appeared the ghost like image of a huge, magnificent black tiger, the Tibetan spirit tiger familiar. The thing opened its huge toothy maw over the German creature's head and bit it clean off and swallowed it whole. I expected a tortured writhing of agony, but the slimy form lost cohesion, and a rushing torrent of gelatinous yellow slime poured from the gaping wound over my hands. Then it collapsed into the mist, and was immediately devoured by the heaving slug things that a moment before had been its minions and slaves. Amidst the cacophonous wail of vile feasting and the tittering of postprandial delight, I must have blacked out. When I awoke, I don't know how much later, the mists were gone, and a cool, fresh breeze filled the chamber from where I could not guess. Vermilion was holding me where I lay, and all was clear and clean within the cellar. The hollowed-out spiral obelisk that had been the cocoon of German's monstrous transformation lay shattered in a heap on the floor. When I came around... Vermilion drew a silver flask from his travel work kit and poured the contents over the shining black rubble. It sputtered instantly, as if burned by acid, and burst into flames. Then it too disappeared from sight. Vermillion motioned me to return upstairs, and he followed me into the dark entry hall. The house seemed so very sad now. quiet empty and bruised I wondered what would become of it and what my dear friend Cassandra German the only surviving member of the clan would be told as if reading my mind Vermilion spoke as we mounted the horses and started back to Hawkwood Hall as the first rays of the Christmas dawn pierced the horizon
4: there's no reason to burden the girl with any of this "'Layla is gone. There's no trace of anything amiss in the hall. "'Her father is dead and in his grave since fall. "'Of that other thing that was and was not Samuel German, nothing remains. "'I'll return discreetly tomorrow and clear things on the subtle plains, and that will be the end of it. "'German was a very foul and evil man. "'He made slaves of any living thing he could, and he came to a suitable end for his troubles.' Those held in thrall in this house are free to return to their hidden places. Jin, Layla, the abominations that occupied the cellar, and the remains of whatever Samuel German had made of himself. All gone. There remains only the story to be told to your family. Layla has disappeared, leaving no word. Why, what of her impending marriage? And the destruction of the box will need to explain its disappearance.
3: Vermilion's voice recited these topics like they were an assignment. And somehow, I knew they were. "'Well, she did strike you,' I began. "'Perhaps she couldn't bear the humiliation, "'and feared my family would cast her out. "'The story has merit, I suppose,' I added. "'Doubtful, but praying to avoid too many awkward interviews with my family. "'And how will we explain that we are privy to this information?'
4: Well, we'll see when the time comes what is required.
3: Vermilion said brightly, his usual controlled demeanour in command once more. Wait, I said, pulling up Pygmalion. You're not going to try that command voice on my family. He looked at me sharply with a grin.
4: Of course not. But I can think on my feet and I'm never less than a good step or two ahead of the minds of ordinary people. Apologies to your family, but they are.
3: Very well, all right. But they're good people. You haven't seen them at their best, I can assure you, with this damnable malaise that's gripped them. And what about that? You said that was Layla's doing. Will they recover now that she's gone?
4: Audrey, Layla and her gin were being bled dry by Samuel German and his acolytes in the cellar. To survive, they had to feed where they could, but the energies they feasted upon were absorbed by German as he struggled to complete his transformation.
3: But what was he to become? I gasped, my mind reeling with disgust.
4: We'll never know, really, although I have some suspicions. But I doubt it was anything like what we saw in the cellar. And that box, that was no gift to your mother. It was Layla's binding box, and German had to secrete the thing in a safe place that Layla would never find it. As to their recovery, I cannot say,
3: he said, and then urged Ramses on towards the house. Christmas Morn at Hawkwood Hall When we entered the hall, I stopped and stared in shock. Despite the early hour, dozens of candles were lit. Fires burned on every hearth, and carols rang out from the phonograph in the entry hall. A chorus of boisterous laughter erupted in the breakfast room, and as Vermilion and I entered the room, we were greeted with an unexpected sight. The table was set with an array of pastries, "'and steaming pots, "'and all around sat my family, "'Sidney, father. "'Even my mother was dressed "'and sitting at his side, "'engaged in merry banter. "'There were even a number of guests "'enjoying the hearty
0: repast. "'Audrey,' my mother said, "'coming to greet me. "'Did you and our guest "'enjoy your morning ride? "'I'm so sorry I didn't come down "'to greet you last evening, "'Mr. Vermilion. It's so good to finally meet you. I was dumbfounded. She looked her
3: old self again, as did Sydney and father. Even Clara and crew and Daniel hustled around, all smiles and in top form. Even James popped in to wish us a Merry Christmas and was forced
0: by my mother to take a plate of scones and a pot of tea. I have no idea what came over me. I was so ghastly tired, but I'm in good form now, and just as well, too, with so many coming to dinner. Then she took her seat again beside father.
3: Sidney saluted me with a jaunty flip of his hand, and Vermilion and I sat down to our plates.
1: We've so much to be grateful for this year,
3: my father boomed, raising his teacup in a toast.
1: We've our good health, many old friends to join us, and our family gathered round. To you all, blessings and good cheer.
3: The group replied in kind, then broke into noisy conversations, while Vermilion and I looked at one another.
1: I just hope by next year my good lad Sidney here will have met some bright young thing to bring round, and we can begin thinking about setting more places
4: at the table.
3: My father added. Slapping my brother on the back, while Sydney grinned and blushed.
4: I've made no headway on deciphering the inscriptions on the box, I'm afraid,
3: Vermilion said cautiously. What box
1: is that, dear fellow?
3: My father asked, glancing up from his plate.
4: Uh, your wife's box, the one from her room with the strange markings. I said last evening I would see if I could determine their origins,
3: Vermilion replied, looking at the group with his head cocked and his eye turned upon them in that certain way.
1: Box? Box? Whatever are you going on about, sir? I don't know of any such box. I fear my girl Audrey is having you on a bit, Mr. Vermilion. I'd have thought you'd be on to her ways by now.
3: (laughs) Again the laughter rocked the table.
1: No more about any boxes. Let us enjoy this day where we're all here together. Now, Audrey, do be my best girl, and go put the next record on the phonograph.
3: Vermilion and I exchanged glances, and I knew we'd be adjourning shortly to the library for a long debriefing, during which I would receive my grade and commentary on the caper we'd just concluded.
4: We'd best be back to London as soon as possible.
3: Vermilion whispered in my ear as I stood,
4: I've had word from Maspeth that a certain widowed lady and her niece have urgent need of assistance. Something about a vicar, his late uncle, and a nasty visitant that comes round only on certain full moons.
1: Lucky Land
2: Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky?
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on TheWickedLibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes pages. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Santa to find you.